Well, I'd invite you now to open back up to the book of Romans, and we're going to look at that passage we read just a bit ago in chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I'm going to tell you a, a story that's pretty embarrassing about myself. Um, at the college, you know I uh, do a bit of teaching, and while I'm teaching, I like to think that I'm really good at spotting a lie or a trick a mile away. You have to be, you have to be really good at that as a teacher, especially in a theological college, because you get, you get students like James at Union, and you have to be really aware of the tricks and the shenanigans that the students get up to. And I like to think I'm pretty good at that. But that self-image that I have about myself just absolutely dissolved one day when I did something so stupid, I can't believe it. It was a couple years ago, I got an email uh, from uh, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs telling me that uh, the Queen owed me money, not in those words, but that they had taken too much taxes out of my paycheck and they were gonna give me some back. And I thought, excellent, yes! And so normally I could see through that and I would obviously just delete that email, uh, but this time I didn't. I'm so embarrassed to say I didn't delete it. I actually really clicked the link. And as soon as I clicked it, I realized how stupid I was to click that link. It didn't take a second and I realized that was a big, big mistake. And I phoned Kayla and I said, you are married to the dumbest man on earth. <laughs> and she said, tell me something I didn't already know. <laughs> Have you ever had a moment in your life like that where you realized in a flash that you were not as smart as you thought you were? Or you were not as good of a person as you thought you were? or you weren't as good looking as you thought you were. Sometimes it just takes a moment and you catch a glimpse of yourself in a mirror and you see yourself for who you really are and what you really look like and what's really in your heart and it makes you depressed. Because so often we live our lives with false perceptions of ourselves. We have an idealized image of ourselves in our mind and all it takes is one quick moment like that to realize that is absolutely not true. And it's not how God sees us. And what a shame it would be to live our lives suffering from an illusion that we are one way, when in reality, God sees us completely differently. That would be a shame, wouldn't it? This passage that we've already read is an expertly designed trap designed by Paul to get you to see who you really are. This seems straightforward. It seems very easy. We think we know what this says, but this is a brilliant trap to get us to see a glimpse of ourselves in the mirror and to catch a glimpse of who we really are. Now, remember last week that Paul was very concerned to emphasize for us that God is righteous. He's a righteous God. Remember that? I said it a million times last week. Romans is written to demonstrate the righteousness of God. And that means several different things. But look immediately at verse 18 and notice the contrast that we have with the righteous character of God. And now in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness 
and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Paul could not make it any clearer that there is a serious, serious difference between the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of humanity. God is holy. God is righteous. He does what is right. He is upright. He upholds what is right. And humanity does the exact opposite. Humanity suppresses the truth in unrighteousness and wickedness. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that godlessness of humanity suppresses the truth in their wickedness? Well, Notice something Paul repeats several times. He repeats three times something that humanity does that demonstrates their unrighteousness. The first one shows up in verse 23. It's that they exchange, see that word, verse 23, they exchange the glory of God for something else. They exchange the glory of God for images of created things. That word is repeated again, verse 25. They exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things. Then that's repeated yet again in verse 26, in about the middle. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Paul is referring here quite simply to the tendency we have as humans to take something good and make it bad. God gives us gifts, he gives us good things, he gives us blessings, and we typically ruin those things. God gives us food and we abuse it. God gives us friends and we betray them. God gives us mouths and with them we tear people down and we lie, and we say things we shouldn't say. God gives us so many things that we quickly ruin and distort because we take what God gives and we exchange it for something else. Three times, they exchange, they exchange, they exchange. What does God do in return? Does he send lightning bolts because he's angry? And destroy people who exchange? No. Just as there are three times where it says humanity exchanges what God gives them for something else, three times Paul says that God does something specific in response. What does he do? Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over. Verse 26, he says it again. Therefore, God gave them over. And yet again, verse 28 just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. So what is God's response to humanity who rejects what he gives them and exchanges it for something else and twists and distorts his good gifts? He does not send lightning bolts. He lets them have what they want. He hands them over to what they ask for. If you want to distort his good gifts, if you want to live violently, greedily, selfishly, you must live in the world affected by your own sin. That is the punishment. That is the wrath that God reveals here. So the fact that we live in a world marked by violence and unfairness and injustice and greediness and lies is only a product of our own choice to distort what God has given. People wonder uh, why back up in verse 26, 
People wonder why Paul focuses on sexual immorality. He focuses here on same-sex relations. And people wonder, why does Paul bring that up? Why does he focus on that? Is that because that is a worse sin than others? Not really. The reason why Paul focuses in verses 26 and 27 on same-sex relationships is because that is a very vivid example of the principle I've just been talking about, the principle that he's describing, the fact that humanity takes what God gives, rejects it, and twists it for something else. That is a very clear, vivid example in the, in the arena of sexual relationships. That is a very obvious example of saying, God, you have given a natural order to things, and I don't want that. I reject it. I exchange it for something else. And in response, God gives people over. So it's not necessarily a worse sin than others in this context. It's just a great example of the principle that humanity takes what God gives, rejects and twists and distorts it. Now, you might be wondering at this point, where's that trap that I mentioned? I mentioned that at the beginning, and I haven't mentioned it yet. Where's the trap? Well, let's see if you've fallen into it. Look closely for a moment at how often Paul says the word they. Did you notice that? He repeats the word they, their, and them over and over and over again. He begins it way up in the beginning of the passage, the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then throughout the whole passage, they, 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 they. I counted 34 times Paul uses the word they, them, or their just in this passage alone. Look at verse 28. They did not think it worthwhile, so God gave them over so that they do what ought not to be done. Now, here's the question. Who are they? If we're going to be close Bible readers, we want to make sure we know who they are, right? Who are they? The closer I looked and the longer I looked and the harder I looked for who they are, I could not figure it out. And the reason is because Paul doesn't want you to figure out who they are. He's intentionally being vague. He's intentionally being vague so that I fill in the blank with who they are, so that I start to say, yeah, Paul, you are right about them. You are right, Paul, about them, those wicked people out there. They are bad. They are wicked. They do worship whatever you put in front of them. They do exchange glory of God for created things. They, 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 until chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. The they, they, they has stopped and it has now become you, you, you. Did you notice that? It was almost too subtle because we have a big two there, a big bold number two and a new verse one, which is not there in Paul's original writing. These are all added later by Bible translators to kind of help us break up the text and find things easily. But here it does not help. It actually really hurts because it makes it sound like Paul's talking about two different things, two different groups of people. And he's not. He's talking about one group of people. And he goes right from verse 32 immediately to verse one without taking any break at all. And so what he's done is he said, they, 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 they. And his audience is saying, absolutely, Paul. 
you're exactly right. They are terrible people. They're wicked. They're horrible. And every time our heart and our mind says they, 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 we are condemning ourselves. And Paul says, I've been describing not the big bad world out there. I've been describing you. You just didn't know it. You didn't even realize it. Remember back in the Old Testament when King David sinned against God, he sinned against Uriah, uh, one of his generals, by uh, taking his wife, Bathsheba, and then when she got pregnant, he had Uriah killed. Remember this? This is an awful, awful time in uh, David's uh, reign. And then after all it happened, uh, the prophet Nathan came to David and said, hey, Nathan, or excuse me, hey, David, remember uh, this really, really rich guy who had everything he could ever want? He had all the sheep and all the cattle he could ever want. And there was this poor man who had just one little sheep, just one little baby sheep, and he loved that sheep so much. And then that rich man stole that sheep and killed it and ate it. What should we do with the rich man? And you remember, David is just furious. He said, By the, as the Lord lives, that man must die. And then what does Nathan say? I've been talking about you. You are the man. This whole thing was a trap. This whole thing was leading you to agree with the fact that if someone does that, they deserve judgment. And guess what? You are that man. Paul is doing the exact same thing here. He's doing the exact same thing here and leading us down the road to agree with him that people who reject God's goodness and who fall short of his glory and who worship created things, those people are worthy of judgment. And it is true. They are. They absolutely are. But when we agree with that, we condemn ourselves, whether we know it or not. And so verse one of chapter two is where Paul spins and says, you are the man. I am the man. If you need any more proof of that, look back at verse 20, the very end of verse 20, where he says that God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. See that? Now go back to verse 1 of chapter 2. You, therefore, have no excuse. What's being shown to us here is that while we typically divide people, we say, the world is composed of the good and the bad, the moral and the immoral, the people in here and the people out there, righteous and unrighteous. Paul is showing us that actually at the bottom of everything, the most fundamental layer of humanity, there is not two groups. There is one group. It's the without excuse group. And we're all in it. We're all in the without excuse group together. And that's painful to hear, but it's necessary to hear because until our own unrighteousness is identified, it cannot be fixed. Until we recognize it, we can't fix it, can we? We labor under the illusion that we are not them, they, they, when in fact, all along, we have been. The person described here in chapter two is someone who knows God's standard, knows God's law, knows God's word, but simply doesn't do it. They may sin in a different way than the people in chapter one, but they are sinners nonetheless. 
what this knowledge of God's law ought to do is lead us to obedience, but it doesn't. When I was much younger, I was about, this is 20 years ago now, which is an amazing thing to say, but I was playing on the church property with one of my friends. So my dad is the minister of the church, and this is not on Sunday, this is during the week where a friend of mine and myself are playing a game, and we're playing a game where we're throwing a ball over the church building back and forth to one another. And you know exactly where this is going. We just absolutely shattered one of the windows, and uh, we broke it. And I cannot remember for the life of me who broke that window. I can't remember if it was me or Jacob, who is my friend. I'll name him just to shame him here, because I think, I think it was him. But guess what? Me being the son of the minister, who got in trouble? Me. Of course I'm the one that got in trouble. And the reason is because I should have known better. I should have known better because my dad is the minister and I ought to have lived up to the standard I knew was set. Those who know better must act better. And so those who know God's righteous standard are not in a position to condemn others. They're in a position they must live up to the righteous standard that God sets. Knowing God's law, knowing his righteous character is not a free pass to sin in different ways. And if you think it is, you are the man. You're the one being addressed here. You're the target of Paul's trap. There's a tendency to think that we are exceptions to God's rule. God has one standard for the world and for sinners, and he has another standard for me because he loves me, right? And so when I sin, it's really not that bad because he knows my heart and he knows I'm a good person. He knows I'm a decent, tax-paying citizen. But when you sin, well, I can, I can see that you're really a sinner and you need to repent. And we, we think of ourselves as exceptions, God has different categories for different people. But what Paul is showing us is that that would make God unrighteous. And that's not true. God is righteous. Look at how he describes God's judgment. Verse two. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God doesn't play games. He is serious and he has one standard. And that standard is for people in here and out there. It's the same standard. And when they fall short of it, it's no different than when we fall short of it. Paul is describing how God is righteous in his judgment. He is not persuaded to be easy on you because you make a certain number of digits in your salary, or you drive a certain model of car, your house is a certain size, or you have a certain color of skin, or you're popular, or you've made a lot of contributions to your uh, neighborhood, or you've done great things, you have achievements next to your name. God is not persuaded by that to be easy on you. Nor does he have a higher standard for people who are poor, or socially awkward, or they have disability. God doesn't have different standards. He has one standard. And when we think we're exceptions, we become the person Paul is trapping to say, look who you really are. Look who you really are. Now, this sounds like bad news, but it's really only bad news if we think we're exceptions. This is actually great news. This is actually wonderful news. This is actually the good news of the gospel because just as God is impartial in his judgment, 
which is what we've been saying. On the other hand, he is impartial in his salvation. Think about it. God is impartial in the way that he saves. The door of salvation is open equally to anybody and everybody who wants to come to him in faith and repentance. The door is open to anybody and everybody of whatever color of skin or size of bank account or gender or slave or free, Jew, Gentile, whatever. The power of salvation unto all who believe. And so this sounds like bad news. This sounds like bad news, but only if, I'm, if I think I'm an exception, if I think I have a leg up, if I think I have, uh, I'm in with God because I'm a good person. But if I recognize that I fall just as short as everybody else, if I see myself for who I really am, this is great news. This is really good news. There isn't any better news that the door is open for me and you equally for those of us who admit our sin and come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, in spite of my failures, in spite of the fact that I might be poor or whatever, God judges impartially, but he saves impartially. And that is wonderful, wonderful news. And that is an invitation for you if you've never realized it. Whatever walk of life you come from, or whatever economic status you have, whatever background you have, the invitation is the same to all of you. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, and you will be saved. You will not get there by achievement and success and respect in your community. As much as you want it to be that way, it is not. Let's bring this to a close by looking at verse four briefly. This is one of my favorite verses. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So the question is, have you experienced blessing from God? Has God been patient with you? Has he been kind to you? If so, trust me when I say, it's probably not because you are a little bit less of a sinner than the person sitting next to you. God's patience and his kindness and his forbearance are chances to repent. It's time. They are second chances to repent. God is using that patience. He's using that kindness to lead you and me to repentance. It's time to repent. It's an opportunity to repent when he could rightfully execute judgment at any moment, which is a terrifying thought, but it's true. But God is impartial in the way he judges and he is impartial in the way that he saves. And so I invite you this morning, if you've experienced the patience of God, don't wait any longer to come to him in faith through Jesus Christ. When we are reminded of who we really are, when we catch a glimpse in the mirror of what's really going on in our heart, that enables us to recognize the depth and the height and the width of the love of God, doesn't it? 
When we see who we really are and we, we take off the mask for a minute, we can see how deep God's love really is. In just a few chapters, Paul is going to say this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who is the ungodly? Who's the sinner? Who's the powerless in that passage? Me and you, not the big bad world out there. We are the sinners. We are the powerless. We are the ungodly. But that's the depth of God's love. And so when we're reminded of this truth and we catch a a glimpse of who we really are, that ought to inspire us and enable us to be just a bit more patient with our neighbor, just a bit more compassionate with our neighbor, just a bit more forgiving and loving and caring and kind and thoughtful. Because if God loved me when I was absolutely unlovable and unlovely and ungodly, why would I have a higher standard than God when it comes to you and other people? I don't have that right. I can't have a higher standard than God. God's saving love is wide enough, it's big enough, it's deep enough for anyone and anyone who comes to him in faith. And that should seriously transform the way that I see and treat my neighbor. Let's end there and pray and ask that it would. Let's pray. Lord, what can we say but thank you for the depth of your love. Please remind us continually of who we really are, that you can make us into something new by the example of Jesus Christ, by the payment of our debt on the cross, and by the renewal and regeneration of the Holy Spirit given to us through the merit of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.